0: Healthcare is working along very well. We could have a big surprise with a great health care package. So now they're happy. What do you mean by big
1: surprise? I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was President Donald Trump on Wednesday, signaling again that the health care fight continues to twist and turn. Here in D.C. at the Politico office, we are tracking those twists and turns. And I'll be joined in a moment by Jen Haberkorn, our senior reporter We'll give a quick sketch on where things stand on Republicans' health bill. But then after the break, you'll hear my conversation with Toby Cosgrove, CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, one of the world's great hospitals, on where he thinks the healthcare push should go and what his challenges are, leading an incredibly large and influential organization that is way outside the Beltway. And note, we recorded this in Toby's office. The audio quality will sound a little bit like we're underwater but despite that wanted to bring you that conversation just a quick reminder if you like pulse check i bet you will like the politico pulse newsletter it comes every morning tracks the latest turns in the healthcare fight you can get it for free at 10am and you can get it at 6am if you are a pro subscriber You can find the pulse newsletter at politico.com/politico pulse and also remember to rate and share this podcast especially now with healthcare forefront in the news Please find us on your favorite podcast app and tell a friend. This is the time to be listening to Pulse Check if there ever was one. And if you have thoughts for me, I'm at ddiamond at politico.com or at ddiamond on Twitter. And with that, let's get to Jen Haberkorn. So back by popular demand, Jen Haberkorn, <laughs> senior writer on the Politico team, and apparently... Prognosticator extraordinaire. Jen, I am holding in my hand a headline that you wrote two weeks ago today, the Senate might miss its deadline in in the July fourth. Thank God Uh, I was right. You were right, so that's that's one. And then earlier this week on our Monday podcast, you talked about how the motion to proceed would be a key procedural hurdle. And if this bill wasn't moving forward, it would go down there. You nailed that too. So (laughs) having having gotten these two key twists right, what is the next surprise that you are looking and seeing? looming.
0: Wow, that's a lot of pressure. Um, I think the- You can make it really
1: far in the future. <laughs> which, the five-year surprise that we won't really be able to fact check for a while.
0: Um, when Trump care goes before the Supreme Court, inevitably, in three or four years.
1: It inevitably is right. That, that is a different story that I don't want to spoil yeah. on this podcast. <laughs> but thinking about the process, for So
0: it Republicans really now are aiming to have a Um, agreement in principle by the end of this week. They feel like if they leave Friday for their 4th of July recess and they do do not have three hard no's, they're in good shape. As you remember, they um, can only afford to lose two no's. Right now there's three who are pretty solid no's. That's Rand Paul, Susan Collins, and Dean Heller. And if they can get at least one of them to you know, soften their stance a little bit, they feel like they're going to go into the 4th of July week pretty good. Um, Their goal is to finish writing the bill and score it over 4th of July, and it seems a little unclear whether CBO can actually score something in a week because of the holiday, Um, but their goal then would be to vote that first week back. And anyone who's followed any bill in Congress knows that Congress often doesn't vote on a bill right after recess, they wait until the end. So whether we come back and have a whole month of more negotiation, which seems a little outlandish, but at the same time, Congress doesn't do anything before a recess. So I think think we're going to see this go out a little further than what Republican leaders want right now.
1: That's a great point on how the recess is the tool to force decisions and to Mm -hmm. come back from a recess and move immediately is something that no one is expecting. And then the next recess is, as you said, another three weeks away mm-hmm. from when they would return in July. I'm curious, Jen, about that movement. And again, knowing that some listeners will be hearing this after the Thursday recording that we're doing, and, and mm-hmm. maybe one of these senators has budged. But when we talked on Monday, Dean Heller seemed pretty locked in. Yeah. He had ripped Republican, uh, Republicans on their bill. He, as we know, is a very vulnerable senator up for reelection, What could possibly move him at this point?
0: Well, the super PAC associated with the president had started to run ads against him, or announced that they were going to run ads. But then they pulled them, and apparently, at that meeting at the White House this week, the president um, uh, kind of acknowledged that that was not a good move and that those ads shouldn't have been run. Um, A lot of Republicans, you know, even though they felt like Heller went way far out on a limb in that press conference, were pretty angry that you know, in the middle of negotiations, a super PAC is going up, attacking one of the votes that you need. Like it was not good strategy. And I guess the president acknowledged that according to Republicans in the room. And uh, that was kind of seen as a good, a good indicator that Heller could come back into the fold.
1: I thought an interesting data point, we had this in Paul's, our colleague, Kevin Robillard, I, I think wrote this, but there had actually been more pro-ACA, anti-Republican health bill messaging this go around Previously, you know, that was totally flipped. There was all this anti-Obamacare messaging and and ads. The America First messaging has been also attack ads overall rather than pro – they're they're attacking Heller rather than running pro why people need to vote for this bill. It was was striking that that's where the bulk of their dollars went.
0: Right, and it's interesting because, I mean, House members are a little more subject to, um, you know, strong-arm tactics like attack ads or if you remember – um, a PAC associated with Paul Ryan went after a Republican when he was about to vote no. And House members move more on those types of things. Senate Republicans don't. And I don't know if that's because they have more resources or they just feel a little more empowered because they're a higher office. There's fewer senators. but senators Fewer elections. Yeah, exactly. One election
1: every six years rather than
0: two. There's several Republicans in here who just got reelected in November and they don't have to face voters for six years. That gives them so much leverage to to act here.
1: I want to go to the broader context of how this bill is being messaged and reported. The fact that there have been more attack ads run against Heller than pro-ads in favor of the message speaks to how hard this bill is to message, mm-hmm. especially given the coverage cuts. You saw the coverage of the media coverage of the Affordable Care Act over the years Do you feel like the media has been harsher with the Trump administration and this in a way that would not have been the case with the Affordable Care Act, that for some reason folks are more aggressive because the media is just more tough on the Trump agenda?
0: I feel like that might be a question – I feel like I'm so in the weeds right now I might not have the 30-foot – 30,000-foot view to... You do
1: have the 30-foot view. <laughs> right, I have 30-foot. <laughs> the foot. weeds are a little 30, tall, 000, but yes. No.
0: Um, but I think there is a sometimes a bias against something like taking coverage away, and that might be coming through in some of the media coverage. Um, I don't know. What do you think? You re, you write Pulse every day, so you see what other people are publishing. How how does that compare that to what you saw in 2009,
1: 2010? So I've thought a lot about this, and I've heard criticism from folks either in the Republican side, in the administration, or just out in the field saying that the media is reporting on this bill in a very aggressive way that didn't happen with the Affordable Care Act. I I will say that when I was tracking the ACA, it was more as an analyst eight years ago than as a reporter. But there were a lot of hard-hitting stories from Politico and elsewhere about the deals being struck, all the shade around the Cornhusker kickback Mm -hmm, and and Ben mm -hmm. Nelson. That did not get traction, if not for the media writing about it and chasing it. So I do think that reporters always serve that function of – I mean, God, we're both so biased because we're reporters. But <laughs> reporters do serve that function of pushing back on whatever – whoever the administration is, whatever they're pushing out there, reporters are going to be skeptical and inquisitive. Right. And there just happen to be that many more holes with the bill that is projected to take coverage away – than one that was projected to expand coverage.
0: And you hear something like a kickback for one senator's vote and, like, journalist's eyes just light up like Christmas morning. I mean, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, whatever, that is just, like, love it.
1: (laughs) Well, as your eyes are literally lighting up. (laughs) And and that's something else. We've talked a little about this off air, some of the rumors that we've heard. We were just talking about one right before coming on the air. And yet we are only going to report a fraction of those right. possible deals that are being floated out there.
0: Only because we can't confirm all of them.
1: That's, that was my next question. We are in a field where right now the Democrats are floating what they've heard on, on rumors mm-hmm. and deals because they want to stick things to Republicans. We have actual news coming in. How does someone like you, without giving away your sources or, or too much of your process— when you're hearing these things you just broke the scoop that they were uh, Republicans were going to add 45 billion dollars in opioid funds that was your scoop with Burgess and Josh Dossie helping out too how do you confirm something like that for listeners who might be tracking this story but not mm-hmm. understanding how we put the story together
0: well it's all about being in touch with sources and you know saying you know what are you hearing Obviously, we knew the ask on opioids was out there. Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, Rob Portman from Ohio, made very clear that they want 45 billion in opioid funding. So we knew that was um, out there. We kind of had an assumption that that was likely to get in there, just because it's something everyone can get behind. Those two votes are very important. Um, so it's it's constantly being in touch with sources, asking what you're hearing. Some of it will be when the bill text is out. I mean, if you remember in ACA, we didn't know everything until folks found stuff in the bill. Some of this stuff is really buried. I mean, I think the Louisiana um, Medicaid bump was—it does—it's—it's it's not like there's a subject title that says like this is the, the Louisiana purchase. They don't make it easy for reporters. Exactly, to that, you know? exactly. So some of this, you know, doesn't come out until you see the legislative text, and you know, a smart analyst or someone digs it up.
1: And some of that too is the opponents get to go over the yeah, legislative absolutely. text and find the problems that they think will either sink the bill or get passed along to someone who may be scrutinizing the bill. We will leave it there for now. Jen Habercorn, ACE reporter, running back off to the hill, got her pencil behind her ear. <laughs> not not literally, just kind of metaphorically. But thank you for again making time for Pulse Check, and listeners can follow Jen on Twitter at Jen Hab. Send her tips. Habercorn at Politico.com as she sorts through the the gold mine pouring in right now. Thank you, Jen.
0: Thank you, Dan. You're very generous.
1: Hey, it's Dan Diamond and if you like pulse check and I'm hoping you do if you've made it this far in the podcast, then I have a challenge for you and hopefully it's easier than Republicans attempt to round up votes for their bill. If you have a friend, a colleague, a family member who is tracking the health care fight, share pulse check with them. Either pass along the link on your favorite podcast app, or just tell them to find us and check us out. This is the time to tune into the healthcare debate. And here at PulseCheck, we are trying our best to bring you conversations that matter, like the one coming up in a moment with Toby Cosgrove. And if you have suggestions for who we should be talking to, you can find me at ddiamond Politico.com Dr. Toby Cosgrove is one of the most powerful people in healthcare, and he's certainly one of the most influential people in Ohio as leader of the Cleveland Clinic, which has an over $10 billion economic impact on that state. I was in Dr. Cosgrove's office last week to talk about the state of the clinic, his thoughts on health reform, and other priorities he has. We wanted to bring a big chunk of that conversation to you now, and just a word of warning. We were in his big office, which echoed he was fighting a cold, I had remote recording equipment, so the quality isn't going to be quite what you're used to, but we wanted to bring you a conversation with someone who's shaping the healthcare debate outside of the Beltway and sees things from a ground-level perspective, not from the Capitol. So here's my conversation with Dr. Toby Cosgrove. You were approached by both the Obama and Trump administration to serve as VA secretary. You turned them both down. Why wasn't that job interesting to you?
2: Well, the job is interesting to me, and I care deeply about veterans, particularly because of my experience in Vietnam having participated in evacuating 22,000 sick and wounded uh, during the time I served there. Uh, And uh, there was different reasons for turning each uh, each one of them down. The Obama administration asked me to uh, take that position, uh, and it was about two years before the end of that administration. Now, the the VA employs 360,000 individuals, Um, and it's a $180 billion uh, enterprise. And I didn't think in two years you could make a major change in the culture of that organization. It's too big. It's going to take a long time, a lot of support to make that sort of change. So I thought that that was certainly the reason that I didn't do it at that time. What I did was that I uh, I wrote a letter to the president and told him I was sorry that I couldn't take that job but I would help the VA in any way that I could. Uh, And they put me on a commission on care, which I was vice chair of, and spent 10 months studying the VA and trying to make recommendations from it. So I became acutely aware of the issues of the VA. Um, And uh, when I, uh, at the end of it, I was concerned uh, about the VA and that it is, as you may or may not know, it's the only Service that the federal government uh, provides directly to citizens, Uh, and it has a lot of issues doing that. And one of which is just plain coverage of the United States. They have 168 hospitals for the entire United States, which is about three hospitals per state, which would be very difficult to do. They also have had a considerable turnover in secretaries; they last about two years, and then they're gone. So. And so I thought that if we're going to do something, it was going to require major uh, support uh, from uh, particularly the Senate uh, to change uh, the approach of the VA. And after I canvassed uh, a group of senators uh, about that and had substantial discussions with them, I didn't think that support was there. So I didn't think I could accomplish the things which I thought needed to be accomplished.
1: Do you feel like the VA is heading in the right direction under Secretary Shulkin, <coughs> who started under the Obama administration and is continuing with the Trump?
2: Yes. And I think, he first of all, I, I like the fact that we now have a doctor uh, who's head of the VA. If you look at the 360,000 people who work for the VA, 330,000 of them are in health care. And this is one of the first times we've had a doctor heading up the VA, which I think is a very good move for the VA. He, I think he comes with uh, a great perspective on the issues because he knows them. And also he has a very good plan. And so I'm very supportive. In fact, I and four other uh, CEOs of healthcare organizations have been very supportive of him over time and discussing his
1: strategy with us, with him. You're planning on stepping down from the clinic at the end of the year. Do you have any idea about what that next role might be? Is there a next role? I
2: don't have any idea what the next role is going to be. If you know anybody that's looking for a used heart surgeon,
1: uh, let me know. I'll I'll keep my eyes out. I'm sure you'll need a lot of help as Cleveland Clinic CEO. As we're talking in mid-June, the Affordable Care Act may get repealed, and the Medicaid expansion could get rolled back. I heard from your patients and staff today about how important that Medicaid expansion has been to their care, to the operations. (laughs) One senator from Ohio, Rob Portman, could end up being a a crucial swing vote here. What are you telling Rob Portman about repeal of the ACA and specifically about Medicaid expansion?
2: I spoke to him about uh, this, and I uh, was hopeful that uh, this uh, repeal would not happen. I think the the reason I feel that way is I don't think it is dealing with the root cause of the problem. The root cause of the problem is the escalating cost of health care across the country. And until we begin to deal with that and deal with it in a bipartisan fashion, I don't think that we're going to actually uh, begin to solve our issues. And uh, I, you know, and the current bill is just moving money from one group to another group and really not solving uh, the root causes.
1: So the root cause of health care and, and those high prices can come from a lot of different things. There's yes. high pharmaceutical costs, which I know have impacted the clinic's bottom line. There's just high prices, period, which providers play a role in setting too. In your mind, Dr. Cosgrove, what is the reform that Washington needs to be talking about that it's not tackling in healthcare? So I think you have to go at it from two aspects.
2: I think you have to go at it from the aspect of how we can make the delivery of care to people who are sick more efficient. Uh, for example, um, you look at the escalating costs of pharmaceuticals. You look at uh, the uh, tremendous amount of regulation that's going on. We've had 14,000 pages of regulation in the last two years. We always have somebody in the hospital inspecting us. We have the Justice Department as stands in the way of consolidation of hospitals into systems in many cases.
1: So you're, you're talking about the DOJ getting in the way of some of the efforts that the ACA has endorsed for hospitals and physician groups to work together. The DOJ has moved to block some of those.
2: Yeah, and and so uh, the you know the FTC, uh, Federal Trade Commission, and the Justice Department are blocking the, some of the consolidation. We have a system in the United States which is essentially a cottage industry of every community having its own hospital. And it's now not possible for all hospitals to be all things to all people. And we have to have them work as systems together and consolidate like every other industry in the United States has, whether it's lawyers or bookstores or consultants or supermarkets or airlines. They've, They've come together for the efficiency And there's a tremendous amount of back-office things that are required to support health care, and you can get those sorts of efficiencies. Now, the other aspect of it is we have to deal with people keeping themselves healthy. Think about 18% of the people still smoking in the United States. A third of the people in the United States are obese, which accounts for 10% of our health care costs. We've got a burgeoning epidemic of Uh, drug uh, opiate usage. 53,000 people dying in the United States last year for drug overdose. overdose. And it's going up. This is more than suicide or uh, murders or car wrecks across the United States. It's a huge problem um, uh, which we're just not uh, dealing with. And we we need help uh, dealing with these problems. If we don't deal with them now, they're going to be worse 10 years from now.
1: There was a Editorial that I saw on Cleveland.com, Cleveland Plain Dealer, just a day or so ago, urging Rob Portman to vote against any repeal of Medicaid expansion, in part because of the impact on drug use and and all the folks who now depend on on Medicaid. Just circling back on that, you have one of the biggest platforms in healthcare, and this is something that's mystified all of us in D.C. All of these hospital systems that have so much to potentially lose from the Republican repeal, why aren't you going? scorched earth against this bill and putting out as many different ways of trying to slow it down as possible.
2: You know, we, we've used our influence in, in a quieter way uh, in behind, behind the scenes, uh, with direct discussions with senators, et cetera. And uh, frankly, I think that's probably as effective, if not more effective.
1: Okay. We're sitting in, in an amazing campus, amazing view All the walls are white. There's a chief design officer who's world-renowned, who I understand you just hired. You're expanding with the new education building. And this stems a lot from your vision of how the physical environment should be on campus. Off campus, it's a different story. You can go a few blocks. There are dilapidated houses. There's blight, high unemployment. One member of your leadership team told me today, don't walk around here at night. Is it the clinic's responsibility to fix that? That's a
2: great question. I'm
1: glad you asked that question. And and we do.
2: And I think that if you look at where where we are, I think we have three obligations. We need to provide great health care. We need to provide great jobs. And we need to support education. Uh, And we have done all those three things. Now, we've also entered into the community. We just gave a half a million dollars to take down blighted homes uh, in our immediate vicinity. This particular area of town 40 years ago was way worse than it is now. Uh, now, the bigger question is, and I think this is a question for our country, if you compare us with European countries, our health care costs are more. And percentage-wise, we put much less into social programs. If you look at the causes of premature death in the United States, <clears throat> they're social. They're related to food and housing and jobs and education. Now, the question is: Is that the uh, responsibility of healthcare organizations? Uh, is this is this where um, we don't get paid for this? We're not trained to do this. You know, uh, and people are increasingly looking to us to begin to deal with these sorts of situations. I say that the community, that the society as a whole has got to look at these uh, circumstances, and they can't depend upon just us to uh, be understand about education and housing and food and all the things that are determining
1: both the quality of uh, your life and your length of your life. Though there are increasing incentives that reward providers on population health, and that trickles back to you guys.
2: Yeah, population health, and we're going at population health, no question about that. We think that that's a a good direction to go. But how much can we do in population health when it – can we educate everybody? Can we provide them all with uh, supermarkets, with food? Can we – do we have a responsibility – uh, for their jobs, uh, these are these are tough societal questions, not just questions for healthcare providers.
1: That's that's fair. Well, I, I think one reason healthcare providers get asked this is because we have expanded our definition of health, and in many cases, the Cleveland Clinic is is among the organizations that is tax exempt. That the deal is to be tax exempt, you're serving the community. Cleveland Clinic's community benefit has gone up about $40 million between 2013 and 2015. Charity care plunged over $100 million in that same time because of the ACA expansion. Should more of Cleveland Clinic's bottom line be going toward finding grants to help with schools, education, food, whatever it might be?
2: Yeah, our margin last year was 1.7%. And if you look at hospitals across the country, 23% 23% of the hospitals in the country last year lost money.
1: But that's not Cleveland 50, Clinic. Well, we were, we were 1%, 1.7%. Well, that's before investments and other income overall. You had over $500 million and in revenue you, and, over expenses. And, and,
2: and by the way, this we've just kept rolling this money back into Cleveland, back into providing jobs. Uh, you know, we are the biggest uh, tax provider uh, in the city of Cleveland, our employees. So we do a a lot in terms of uh, pushing the economy in Northeast Ohio, in terms of jobs, in terms of uh, looking after patients, in terms of the programs that you see rolled out across this organization. Uh, I I think that we have more than fulfilled our duties as a tax-exempt organization, not to mention education, Um, that uh, we have. Uh, Have you visited the high school here recently that we are participants in John Hay High School, which has gone to now has 100% of their kids going
1: to college? And that's because of a clinic initiative? Yeah, it is. We're part of it. I have talked to folks in the city who say that there could be more, though. If the clinic was taxed, that is tens of millions of dollars more into local school districts. And I think from the year that you started as head of, of the clinic, there has been a focus Washington. Chuck Grassley asked the clinic to testify in its role in the community. Local regulators have eyed the clinic for tax-exempt dollars. It doesn't feel like this is ever going to totally go away. Would the clinic ever be interested in a payment in lieu of taxes program like has been done in Boston and other cities?
2: As soon as they start doing the same thing with the churches and the Salvation Army and the Red Cross and all the other tax-exempt organizations, we'd be happy to do our part.
1: Okay. I just want to go back to your argument about the clinic and and its profitability. I get that the margins, when calculated, are relatively small, but we're talking about an organization that is clearing billions of dollars in revenue. And overall, in the past four years, there has been $2.7 billion in total profit across the clinic. And that's after just revenue over expenses. That's after investment income and and elsewhere. The clinic increasingly is a multinational. You have campuses in London, Toronto, Abu Dhabi. How do you stay focused on Cleveland when there are so many other parts of the enterprise that now require your attention? Well,
2: let me tell you about uh, Abu Dhabi, for example. Um, Abu Dhabi, uh, the people in Abu Dhabi built the hospital. Uh, They... Pay our salaries and they pay us a consulting and management fee. That money is coming back to Cleveland uh, to be reinvested in our organization. We are using our intellectual capital overseas uh, to benefit Northeast Ohio. Now, if you look at uh, the the healthcare, uh, you look at the world, what does the world want from the United States? They want our investments, they want our uh, entertainment they want our graduate education, they don't want our steel, and they want our health care. This is an opportunity, and we're probably one of the very few organizations in the world that have used that to invest our time and effort and intellectual capital uh, and bring back returns to the United States. I think it's a a very good use of our uh, efforts. And I think we've got opportunities to do lots more of that.
1: Well, flipping that around a little bit, there has been so much focus at the highest levels of government about steel and mining and bringing back the manufacturing sector when the economic engine increasingly is healthcare, And you just look at where the jobs are and and what is growing. What is being missed in Washington about the reality of an economy like Cleveland and Pittsburgh and kind of the rest of the Midwest.
2: Well, I think one of the things that you you uh, realize if you go around the United States is that healthcare is probably the biggest employer in almost every city in the United States, and it's been one of the employers that has grown even through the two thousand eight
1: two thousand nine economic downturn. It, it hasn't lost jobs any single month. Yeah, exactly.
2: And uh, and if you stop and think about it, uh, it turns if if you look at the economics. Um, Mark McClellan wrote a book some time ago saying that 50% of the growth of the GDP in the United States was because of the increasing life expectancy. As people live longer, they pay more taxes, they buy more cars, they, uh, and then they just drive the economy of, of the United States. That is a big dividend that is way underappreciated. Everybody in the United States now looks at health care as a cost. They don't look at it as the fact that it decreases suffering, it improves life expectancy,
1: and uh, it drives the economy. Thinking a little bit more about the strategy of the clinic at a time when Washington has been very involved with the ACA, now potentially the AACA, how are you as CEO judging against the potential risks that you can't control versus what you can delivery on the ground.
2: So one of the things that we realize is, <clears throat> and we realized this about four or five years ago, that we had to drive the, uh, the affordability of health care. And so we started uh, then uh, beginning to take costs out. And we figured that we on an $8 billion budget, we had to take about $1.5 billion out of cost. And
1: just to clarify, you mean like lowering expenses and looking for efficiencies around the system? Right. Okay. And so when we've now
2: taken out uh, almost $900 million of, of cost over time. We will continue to do that. Uh, we're planning on taking about, a, about $300 million out a year over the next several years uh, to make uh, – care more affordable but ultimately you know we uh, have to uh, change how we deliver care in order to do that uh, and we're in the process of doing that and as we begin to look in more and more ways so we can deal with population health where the emphasis is really keeping people well and keeping them out of the hospital that's that's the direction we've got to go
1: one of the big challenges in healthcare right now is the transition away from fee-for-service to other forms of payment. The advisory where there was always the talk about keeping one foot in two boats. We don't know when the fee-for-service boat will sink. When do you think fee-for-service will go away? Do you even think it will go away? Will it be something that will be with us in healthcare for decades?
2: That's, that's difficult to say. It's at different uh, levels at different areas in the country. It, you know, some some areas of the country are really moving very fast, and some areas uh, haven't. It's almost like you take the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, below the Mason-Dixon line, very very little movement towards uh, uh, away from fee for service. Uh, and if you go to California and Massachusetts and other areas, you're moving much faster
1: towards it. We're sort of in the middle of the road on that. Okay. Thinking about your strategy at the clinic, I've interviewed folks like Steve Case who talk about Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, hospital systems in the middle of the country, setting more on healthcare policy and strategy than we give them credit for. You have tried at the clinic to be farsighted. You've Teamed up with Oscar Health most recently yes. to deliver health insurance in, in Cleveland. You also teamed up with Theranos a few years ago. No, no, we didn't team up with Theranos. You strategically allied with Theranos. No, no we didn't. Well, that's well, what it was well, called at the time—a strategic alliance. Wait, 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 let me tell you what we did. Okay.
2: What we did is we said that we would test their capabilities when they were ready to give us, give us the capabilities. We didn't invest in them either personally. Or as, as an institution, we had no strategic relationship with them, except that we did do some of their testing here that was done uh, on standard stuff, uh, not on their device. We, other than that, that's all we did with Theranos. We were anxious to, to see if Theranos worked because if it did, it was a game changer in healthcare. Um, and we never got the device, so we never tested
1: it. But you did, and I know because I heard you speak about it, you did speak very favorably about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes until they eventually kind of collapsed under the weight of their own hype.
2: What I said was, I said that this was potential, and if it would work, it's a game changer. And we were anxious to see if, uh, to test it. What
1: did that experience teach you?
2: What it taught me was, I think you have to be out and willing to look at new things and evaluate them, and I continue to feel that way. Not all of them are going to work. I tried a lot of things as a surgeon that didn't work, and I'm delighted that I did, and some of them worked fine.
1: What is the clinic trying now that could be high return and might not work?
2: Well, I think we're trying trying, uh,
1: some things that
2: uh, I'm not sure that are going to be high return, uh, but I think one of the things that we're very excited about is HoloLens. Uh, That is Microsoft's augmented reality. Uh, we're going to teach anatomy now without uh, cadaver. Uh, it's stunning, the things that you can learn from that. Um, the other day I'm walking around a heart uh, that is out there in space wearing these uh, headsets, and they said, Toby, stick your head in. And I stuck my head in. My head's in the left ventricle, and I'm looking at the valves. That is stunning, and the potential for that sort of uh, capability and learning and hopefully on one day moving on into the clinical arena uh, is uh, really very
1: exciting. Something I've heard from from physicians, including in my own family, is that the golden age of being a doctor is not now, that it was earlier before there were more electronic records to be filled, more fighting with insurance companies, that it was easier to be a doctor and, and more fun 30 or 40 years ago. You've just laid out a scenario that does sound really cool to be a doctor now and learning with, with the HoloLens, if you could pick a time to be a physician starting out, just for sheer enjoyment of the practice, is now the right time?
2: Absolutely. The, things, the, the opportunities now far exceed anything that we could um, imagine. Think about <clears throat> the potential of understanding diseases better than you ever did before. Uh, think about the, the potential that genomics is going to bring to us so that we can understand the causes of disease. Think about the new treatments that there's going to be. Um, think about our ability to extend life and understand the, the diseases and the suffering better than we ever can. I think healthcare is incredibly exciting now. It's different, uh, and we're going through a transition. Uh, which makes a lot of people who grew up in a different era uncomfortable. Uh, but, you know, the world is
1: moving fast and healthcare is being uh, disrupted. So, you don't think that medicine is driving out its most potential, highest potential new doctors with the range of requirements and how physicians have lost some of their autonomy? and are more part of a system. No question. I mean, there's a major
2: change that is driving burnout across the United States. The first one is doctors have lost their autonomy. And how, why have they lost their autonomy? Well, <clears throat> when I grew up as a kid, the doctor would come to your house, and he had all his diagnostic capabilities and his treatment in a black bag. One guy. Now, you can't possibly look after somebody without a whole team. And so physicians have had to go from being solo players to being team players, which is not a natural act for for most doctors. So you've lost autonomy. You had to become team players. Then the ACA comes along, which changes your payment uh, methods uh, substantially, and you're measured on quality metrics, uh, and you have to report those on a regular basis. Docs aren't used to that. Uh, Then the next thing that comes along is the electronic medical record, uh, which uh, is uh, very challenging uh, for uh, physicians. And the one that concerns me the most is the explosion in knowledge. <clears throat> the total amount of knowledge in healthcare is now doubling every 73 days. When
1: and just think about this. Oh, you're talking about, like, scientific studies and...
2: Well, how many journals? Are there are 5,600 journals, medical journals, turning out 900,000 articles a year.
1: Which no one has possible time to read.
2: Exactly. So, you know, and the way we've dealt with this in the past is that we've taken medicine and we've sliced the bread up. A general surgeon used to look after the skin and its contents now, the general surgeon has been replaced by an orthopod, a gynecologist, a pulmonary, a cancer doctor. So we specialize, specialize, specialize. We can't do it anymore. Uh, and so we're going to have to have help in dealing with all that knowledge. Um, and we're going to have to turn to uh, IT. Uh, that's one of the reasons we have uh, a partnership with IBM, with them building a, on our campus here for Watson Healthcare. Uh, just think about how we're going to deal with all that uh, information. But think about also the fact that you're going to have <clears throat> a better understanding to take cancer. You're going to have to sequence the patient, sequence the tumor, figure out which drug you're going to use, figure out the patient's renal function, their body surface area, all those sort of things, and then decide what you're going to, how you're going to treat them and
1: how much. Can a nurse practitioner take some of the responsibility that historically has been apportioned to a physician. This has been a debate over should NPs prescribe drugs? How much autonomy should they have?
2: Absolutely, because we don't have enough physicians to go around. Uh, we're Right now we have 1,600 uh, physician extenders across our uh, organization, and it increased 25% last year, and it's going to continue to increase with time.
1: Last question about your leadership when you think about your style, how would you define it? What, what is the word that sums up how you have approached being CEO of this organization that you've taken and grown over a decade?
2: Chronically dissatisfied with the status quo.
1: So you'll leave here feeling dissatisfied with what you've done? I'm very proud of the organization.
2: Uh, you know, I'm dissatisfied that it's never where you want to be. There's always... Room to grow, room to improve, um, and you have to continually be in that quest.
1: Well, I feel that way at the end of every interview that there are probably 20 questions I could have asked and didn't. Dr. Toby Cosgrove, thank you for making time for this interview. It's been my pleasure. That is all for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Jen Haberkorn and Dr. Toby Cosgrove and his team. Thank you to Rachel Cusick, our ace producer who's always finding time and space to do these conversations. You can find Pulse Check on your favorite podcast app. Now is the time to listen and share, please do, and share with me who you think we should be talking to. I'm at at ddiamondatpolitico.com or at ddiamond on Twitter. And we will be back with a new episode of Pulse Check, probably sooner than I expect.